Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. And if you can't get enough of it, you can come and see me live if you uh, come on my tour. We're taking the radio show around the country. I'm also doing stand-up. You can go to mattchorley.com for all the details of that. Right, coming up on today's episode, just a small matter of war and how to avert it. We'll unpick exactly what's happening between Russia and Ukraine and what it means for the region and for Britain too. Uh, so it's your sort of complete guide to uh, making sense of what's happening there. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel on a Monday. It is Libby Rachie, so it's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. So I suppose we should say we're talking politics. Let's start with the, the latest, uh, just when um, lying, rule-breaking, intimidation and bribery was not enough. Uh, we now add allegations of Islamophobia. Uh, to the mix with the with the claims by Nusrat Ghani that she was fired from her job as a minister because of her Muslimness. Uh, it's been denied by Mark Spencer, the chief whip, uh, and now yet another inquiry has been ordered. Um, what do you make of this, Libby, Libby Purvis? Well, there's, uh, at the moment, there's just too much stuff about early 2020. I mean, who drank what, who said what. And I would have more sympathy with Ms. Ghani uh, if she had made more of a fuss about this a great deal earlier, uh, because her attack is coming just in the middle of all these other attacks on the whips and on, on the government. Um, but I think that the trouble is that when a party or a government seems to be fighting internally like a lot of rabid rats in a sack, then everybody loses all respect for all sides. It's like the, the big ongoing round in Christchurch College in Oxford, you know, Dons versus Dean, which has now made this college a universal laughing stock and dismays all the rest of the university. Just flapping your filthiest linen around in public does not do any good. And I wish she had not brought it up right now in the middle of all these other accusations, you know, the blackmail accusations and so on. It just feels like a plot, even if it isn't a plot. So the timing is just awful. But all sympathies with her. And also some sympathies with the poor old chief whip, who Mark Spencer, who said, you know, no, these words were never said, and it's by the way, it's me that never said them just to clear it up. Which, <laughs> yes, I thought that, that was a um, yes, I just want to be absolutely clear that I completely deny the thing, that, but it was me, but it was not, it wasn't me. <laughs> As yeah. a defence, as a defence is up there with all the other slightly strange. I mean, does this, does this make us all respect government? Does it, <laughs> um, Rachel? Your, your assessment of it. Well, I agree with you about the sort of Mark Spencer tweet. There obviously was some conversation that he could identify as having been involved in. So that was really strange. But for me, the thing that's most significant about this is I actually don't agree with Libby because I think it does matter. And I think it raises more questions about Boris Johnson's judgment because um, Nusrat Ghani did go to the Prime Minister and raise her concerns and say what had happened. And he sort of brushed it aside and said, oh, go and, you know, talk to the party about it. It's an internal party matter, which, of course, it wasn't because it was to do with her government position. So it sort of raises questions about his, both the sort of lack of compassion. I mean, you imagine if an, an employee comes to you and says, look, I've had mm. these 
terrible uh, Islamic phobic things said to me, just on a sort of personal level, the sort of lack of emotional intelligence, just to sort of brush that aside, but also on the kind of actual substantial political judgment, just to sort of say, try and send her off to the Tory party inquiry. Um, that just shows a sort of complete lack of judgment from the prime minister. That for me is a significant thing about this. Um, and I suppose that's the thing is it, it's sort of we've now reached the point, Libby, that I, I take your point about the timing of it. And it does it does look like, it, you know, and it's easy. I suppose, I suppose it's easy for defenders of the prime minister to dismiss it as being all part of a plot. Um, but it does just all add to the sense that this is a I mean, this doesn't feel like a government that can get back on the front foot. That's the that's the big question, isn't it? And there's an amazing, oh, amazing to... story in The Times today from Henry Zeffman that some of these um, 2019 intake MPs are planning to submit. It, it's basically like a freedom of information request, a data release, which which basically asks for all records that refer to them, which anyone can do, can go to a government body and ask for any any uh, details of them which are held. I mean, if MPs are going to try and basically get every time the chief whip is moaned about them in a WhatsApp or an email, it's impossible to get this genie back in the bottle, isn't it? Uh, it is. And I mean, uh, at the moment, we've got Ukraine, we've got the uh, National Health Service buckling and straining at the seams. You know, we've got a huge economic lot of pain to come, you know, which is, is going to have to come. We've got the, the gas business, uh, the, the, the fuel price business. All these things just need concentration from a lot of professionals, not a lot of people fretting about you know who said what to who when you know it's 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 tough i mean it, but it's uh, you, you know something you, you you start to lose patience and i mean if the labor party if, if keir starmer has any sense he will as as um uh, i think it's claire says says this morning you know start to give us some quite sort of stern costed factual proposals for when they take over yeah and i think i think that there is that there's a really sort of careful line isn't it um rachel that the opposition have to walk that they don't, because I think they basically realised they overreached on wallpaper last year and mm. were seen to just be banging on about that at the expense of all else. And they need to sort of, yes, keep up the pressure on Boris Johnson for the, you know, the ins and outs of whipping and parties and so on, but actually focus on the real world of it as well so they don't just look like they're playing a sort of Westminster game all the time. And, you know, gas, yeah. gas bills, climate change, war with Russia, they're all quite big things that the opposition need to, need to have views on as well. Definitely. And also the Conservative Party is doing a pretty good job of attacking itself. So in a way, the internal opposition <laughs> is, them. is more powerful than the external opposition. Um, yeah, well, well, we'll see. But I mean, yeah, who knows what, 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 what will come out of it all uh, towards the end of the week. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about your column uh, today, uh, um, Libby, because you've been talking about the, the, the careful snipping out of bits and pieces from BBC sitcoms. <laughs> Well, allegedly, yes, the, the radio sitcoms, some very sort of attentive listener to BBC Sounds, which, by the way, I adore. I mean, the archive of fabulous old stuff, old drama and old, you know, from golden age drama and golden age um, comedy is absolutely wonderful. All my walks and bike rides have been held together in lockdown by that. But there's just a suggestion that, you know, odd little words, you know, like when Albert Steptoe says, you look like a puffy Victorian poet, you know, and they click out that first adjective there just starting you look like a victorian poet uh it just it's a pity and 
is a sort of parallel with the thing people sometimes try to do to books, you know, because radio and books are much easier to cut than television and films are. Um, it's that sort of sense that um, uh, that, that cultural culture can somehow be adjusted to be much nicer and more sort of politically correct and, and woke, if you like, um, in, in retrospect. And it just can't be. You know, I think we need to stare back bravely and say, good grief, you know, all those 1930s <laughs> novels were full of casual anti-Semitism, you know, weren't they? Does this not tell us quite a lot about how civilised people were able to think? And then you think yourself, right, what are the things that we say now, which in the future people may think are a bit loathsome? And so I, I don't like the retrospective cutting. This is a tiny thing, the radio thing. And normally in television, you just get these ridiculous warnings saying, you know, expressions of a certain sort, you know, which were common in 1965 you know, may distress some people. Um, that's fine. But actually cutting them out, I don't like. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's unhelpful in, in every way. And the one thing I really love is that when they do Rumpole of the Bailey repeats on Talking Pictures TV by John Mortimer, who defended gay news and Oz and, and so on, you know, it's a terrific liberal barrister. He wrote it all, but it still has to have little warnings saying, you know, there may be certain expressions which could distress and upset modern listeners. I think we, we've got to look at the past with a clearer eye, I think. Well, I mean, the most amazing thing about this story is is the the listener who spotted it and kept some... I mean, I don't know how... Did they listen to the one that went out and then find an old one? Because some of them are quite sort of, like you said, it's sort of half a sentence or a word just snipped out here and there. Just to... Some people have recordings. <laughs> they have the old archive recordings on, on tape of these and, things and then and they listen to them, them on the air. And you know I think it, it's very cunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we need, we need these vigilant people, you see. <laughs> These vigilant people in our midst. No, it's a, it's a light reflection, this column, but yeah, uh, yeah. it just, you know, it's enabled to, to just look back and think how many books, you know, uh, have got something in them which we can't approve of now in our very censorious way. One of the things, um, uh, Rachel, the last few uh, weeks we've been watching, it's, it's absolutely brilliant, and I can't believe it's been out, it's an American uh, show called I'm Dying Up Here, and it's about basically the stand-up comedy world in LA in the 1970s. And it's it's based on the sort of true story of the comedy store, but has been um, uh, fictionalised. And even then, there's a warning when you watch it about how some of what is said was, you know, about race and gender and... Um, uh, some people might find it, and I think, but this isn't this isn't a documentary from the 1970s. This is just I know that some of the views are going to be out there because it's a drama set in the 1970s. Yeah, I was watching Monty Python with the children the other day, and it seemed incredibly old-fashioned and antiquated, and all things like um, there was one sketch where a woman had a sort of load of milkmen in her um, bedroom or whatever. It just the whole thing. Or think of Carry On. It is. It's amazing how much our social values have moved on. Um, mm. And I thought that uh, Libby's point was so good about actually label rather than topple, that you can't rewrite the past completely. It's a bit like with the statues. Um, you know, where's it going to end? So what happens to Shakespeare or Chaucer or, you know, all I think, these... I think you've got to go... You've got to go right back to Jane Austen. I mean, frankly, the slut shaming of Lydia, Lydia Bennet in uh, mm. in Pride and Prejudice is shocking. You know, she just expresses her due female sexuality while running off with Mr. Wickham. And we're all supposed to think this is dreadful. You see, uh, cut it, cut it. 
But then also, it reaches a point where, where, at what point are you cutting so much that actually you just make the decision not to shut? You know, if if this joke isn't acceptable, but that one sort of is, but they were both born out of the same time by the same people, you know, either leave it alone mm. or or or, mm. or just put something else on. And also, there's stuff that everything changes from... all the time. Sorry, go on, Rachel. No, you can learn from what, you know, we, the, the world has moved on and that's a good thing. But you can learn from looking at what values and what people did say, you know, 20, 30 or even 300 years ago. You can, you can realise how much things have advanced um, and that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, no, it's. it's yeah, I mean, I think the the interesting one of the interesting thing is is uh, example I give of things we say now, slowly falling out of fashion. Thank goodness is that dreadful acronym BAME, you know, black and minority mm. ethnic, which sort of lumps together people from every kind of race and every, you know, every, every part of society. And people are now starting to say actually it's rather insulting just to lump us all as BAME. And I thought it was, you know, for ages ago, but it's quite that's now kind of falling out of use. But I think it'd be quite interesting for people to look back and say, gosh, people used to sort of say, oh, let's have more BAME employees. Um, mm. It's fascinating. Yeah, and it's, language evolves all the time. And, I mean, and comedy evolves all the time. I mean, you know, the, the, like you were saying, Rachel, the yeah. sort of the old Milkman's thing, it's just a really lame joke, that now. I mean, yeah. You know, it, partly because, you know, it was done to death, it's not real. Um, uh, yeah. Um, but comedy particularly evolves, I think. And comedy, because it's sort of on the edge socially... <laughs> you know, to work, then it's got to be slightly um, pushing the boundaries. So it's going to be at the edges of what becomes unacceptable. Can, yeah. I, can I make a confession here? Seeing, uh, of seeing course. Be away your, for, away for two weeks, away for two weeks and getting off the social media, I thought the Milkman sketch was quite funny because when I was actually <laughs> hearing about it from um, Rachel just now, I suddenly remembered the expression on all those gloomy, trapped Milkman's faces in the room. And that's what made it funny. You know, they were acting. <laughs> they were acting it. And so in that second, it was funny. Yes, of course, it was sort of sexist and disgusting and ridiculous and lame. But on the other hand, it was funny. And but it con- you see it context through the eyes so... of the younger generation as well. That's what's so interesting. If you watch something with your children, you think, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I've made them watch this. It's a sort of... <laughs> but also context. In comedy, context is so important. You know, I've heard uh, uh, Jimmy Carr talking about this recently, that uh, something that he said, you know, something that he says to a room of his fans in the context of gradually, you know, warming them up and getting to the point mm. of, you know, how how offensive can his jokes get and all that sort of thing. Take one of those jokes and put it on the front of the Daily Mail and he looks like the most appalling yep. person in the world. Mm. And context is so important in, in all of that as well. And, and then... here our breakfast table. <laughs> well, there we are. There's a show for Times Radio. Live, live from, the, from Libby's <laughs> breakfast table. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. And of course... You can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times web box. Up next, can we avoid war? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. How close are we to a war with Russia? Russian troops are massed on the Ukrainian border. Western allies are ramping up the rhetoric about the repercussions Russia would face if it does invade Ukraine. The families of diplomatic staff from the US and the UK are being told to leave Ukraine as fears of an invasion rise. Front page of the Times reports this morning, ministers have been warned that a Russian invasion could lead to high uh, oil and gas prices here. So what we thought we'd do this morning is take you through the escalation in the tensions and then try and examine exactly how uh, we might find a way uh, through this. One of the most, for me, one of the most striking uh, comments we've had uh, in the last week came from the Armed Forces Minister, James Heapy. He was on Times Radio last week and explained that a potential Russian invasion would be a war unlike any seen before. What stands in front of us, what could be weeks away, is the first peer-on-peer industrialised, digitised, top-tier army against top-tier army war that's been on this continent for generations. Tens of thousands of people could die. This is not something that people in in Moscow should believe to be bloodless. This is not something that the rest of the world should stand by and ignore. It's right that all diplomatic avenues are being exhausted. I just hope that as we're on the brink people in Moscow start to reflect that thousands of people are going to die and that is not something that anybody should be remotely relaxed about. That was the Armed Forces James Heapy, uh, Armed Forces Minister James Heapy with a pretty uh, frightening uh, assessment of where we are. The US President Joe Biden has said that Russia will be held accountable and allies were ready to take action if they invade Ukraine. I think he still does not want any full-blown war, number one. Number two, do I think he'll test the West, test the United States and NATO as, as uh, significantly as he can? Yes, I think he will. But I think he'll pay a serious and dear price for it that he doesn't think now will cost him what it's going to cost him. And I think he'll regret having done it. Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, etc. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the force amassed on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia if they further invade Ukraine and that our allies and partners are ready to impose severe cost and significant harm on Russia and the Russian economy. Here in Britain, Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, has been leading the diplomatic response, breaking off from a trip in Australia to warn that Russia faces consequences if it provokes a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. There would be severe consequences should Vladimir Putin uh, stage an incursion into Ukraine, uh, economic consequences in particular, and that would have a very damaging effect. And the other point... I would make, which I made in my speech, is this will not be, it would not be easy. The Ukrainians uh, will fight this. This could end up as a quagmire, and I think that should be seriously considered by Russia. That was Liz Truss speaking over the weekend. Um, from Russia's perspective, the foreign minister there, Sergei, Sergei Lavrov, insisting Russia's never threatened Ukraine. 
As far as Ukraine is concerned, we talked about it once again. Our American counterparts once again tried to push to the forefront the issues at the border between Russia and Ukraine. They tried to condition everything on the need of the so-called de-escalation, which has uh, turned into some kind of a mantra. But I would like to reiterate once again, at the end of our meeting, we agreed that next week the U.S. is going to present us with written answers to all of our proposals. And you also said, in particular, that Ukraine has no, present, represents no threat to Russia. And I would like to once again remind everyone who analyzes our public statements and our analysis. And I would like to say that never before has Russia threatened through its official representatives the Ukrainian people. That was Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, speaking at the end of uh, last week. So what is really going on here? How do we get to this point and what happens next? Let's speak to the Times' diplomatic editor, Catherine Philp. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Matt. Um, let's, just because this is one of these, these things which has been bubbling away in the background, is now on the front pages and people might not have been following every uh, twist and turn of this. Just explain why is there this situation between Russia and Ukraine? Sure. So um, late last year, Russia began moving uh, troops to the border of Ukraine and uh, just away from the border of Ukraine in vast numbers. Uh, now at about 127,000 um, under the guise of military exercises. Now, obviously, this is not wholly credible, not least because uh, Russia has previous form on this, having invaded uh, one neighbour, Georgia, in 2008, and Ukraine itself in 2014, when it annexed uh, Crimea. Uh, Russia then said that its real uh, demand was a reorientation of European security, including pushing uh, NATO back to its posture pre-1997. Um, so the flurry of diplomatic activity we've seen over the past two weeks has been uh, about the Russians meeting with um, first the US, then NATO, um, the, the full alliance to discuss those demands. The problem is that NATO is simply not in a position to say, give guarantees such as Ukraine will never be allowed to join NATO, uh, that that is against its very constitution. Uh, and so are having to come up with other tidbits to tempt Russia into compliance. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, the tempo of the military uh, buildup is growing um, louder. Russia has now moved troops into Belarus, giving it an opportunity to attack Ukraine from the north. So there is nothing that is de-escalating in this situation at the moment. We also heard this morning that NATO is putting forces on standby and deploying additional ships and fighter jets to Eastern <laughs> Europe. Um, so both sides seem, you know, it seems to be um, escalating. <clears throat> what, what do you think is the end point of this? Well, I would... Um... I would point out that that deployment is not to Ukraine itself, and there's yeah. no intention of, of NATO to send troops to Ukraine. Um, that is really a reassurance for us, uh, for our Baltic neighbours, who are the, uh, sorry, Baltic uh, allies in NATO, uh, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, who are the countries that Moscow is pressing for NATO to pull out of. And it's something that they've asked for. Um, and it's also essentially a way of showing Putin that if he doesn't back off, he's going to achieve the exact opposite uh, of what he says he wants. Um, I think that we're coming to something of a denouement potentially this week or next uh, because the Americans have been asked to submit written answers to 
uh, Russia's demands, uh, which they will do so this week. Now, what's interesting about this and the fact they've asked for them is that, as we know, Russia's a very authoritarian and um, centralized uh, form of government where Vladimir Putin is really the only one who makes the decisions. So I think given that he's not been in, in any of these negotiations thus far, um, the written answers are a chance for him to look directly at what the Americans um, are, are, are offering in an unfiltered way that's not coming through any of his people. And, uh, and Russia does have an interest in dragging out this diplomatic track as long as possible if it intends to attack Ukraine, because then it can say, well, we got nowhere, we tried, you failed us. Um, so I think that that's the next big move that we're going to see. And just on the on the diplomatic front, where is where is Britain in all, Britain in all of this? Um, uh, Peter Ricketts, former National Security Advisor, writing in the Times today, basically saying, where are uh, the, the, where is the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary? Well, the Foreign Secretary has been in Australia, um, and well, well, uh, and leaking some intelligence, which was seems seems to have gone off slightly half cocked. This story that suggesting that Russian security were trying to replace the Ukrainian <laughs> president with someone else. Yes. Well, I mean, and firstly, I think you played a, um, a clip there of Liz Truss in Australia. You have to ask what on earth she was doing in Australia um, at a time of crisis for European security. Um, Britain is becoming increasingly involved in, in the Asia Pacific region um, because of because in the belief that that's what America wants, um, that China is the uh, great new threat and so that we should be in that a lot of people think we should be much more closely aligned with Europe but as you may have noticed lately Matt we're not getting along very well with our European <laughs> neighbours um, and in fact today the EU uh, ministers are meeting um, to discuss Ukraine and Anthony Blinken the US Secretary of State will be dialing into that. Um, Liz Truss will be in Brussels but obviously not post-Brexit to attend that meeting, uh, in fact, to talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, she also missed a meeting last week, which was supposed to be between her counterparts in France and Germany, along with, uh, with Anthony Blinken when he was physically in Brussels. Um, <clears throat> I see the, uh, I, we have no way of checking the intelligence that uh, she chose highly unusually to release over the weekend. The Americans have given it a sort of qualified health check saying, well, these these are the methods that uh, Russia uses without us really knowing uh, whether the individuals that they've named in this uh, alleged plot are, are credible, credible plotters. Um, but I, I think that that move to release that intelligence does show kind of an attempt for Britain to sort of stand, take a more muscular role, but also to have some singularity in it and differentiate itself from the Europeans. Obviously, it's not the US, so really that's the only role it it, it can choose to play with the current posture towards the rest of Europe. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Phillips, thank you so much for um, uh, describing all of that so clearly uh, for us. As uh, Catherine Phillips is a diplomatic correspondent for The Times, she was mentioning uh, EU foreign ministers are in Brussels today. And in fact, Ireland's Foreign Affairs Minister, Simon Coveney, arriving at that uh, meeting, said that plans by Russia to hold Navy military exercises off the coast of Ireland are not welcome. The artillery drills are supposed to start next month in international waters, but within Irish-controlled airspace. And speaking this morning, uh, as part of you know, international requirements, Russia's informed Ireland what it's planning to do, but uh, Simon Coveney said uh, he's made it clear to the Russian ambassador in Ireland that it's not welcome. It's not a time to increase military activity in the, and tension the context of what is happening with and in Ukraine at the moment. 
So that's uh, just something else, which is a, a, a sort of another front uh, on all of this. Up next, um, uh, let's uh, hear from, uh, as we've heard this morning, British uh, diplomatic staff and their families being withdrawn from Kiev, at least some of them. Well, earlier in the programme, I spoke to Lee Turner, a former UK ambassador to Ukraine, and asked him whether this means a conflict is imminent. It seems to me that we are in an extremely dangerous situation. There is unfortunately a significant chance that Russia will, or the Russian leadership, rather than the Russian people, I'm sure, will plunge Russia and Ukraine into a totally unnecessary war. And it's prudent for the British authorities to pull some of the non-essential staff out of Kiev because the risk of a conflict has grown. Um, just describe us for us, um, how big is the embassy? What is the sort of the British diplomatic president presence in Ukraine normally? Well, there's a, there's a few dozen diplomats uh, or UK-based staff and uh, a similar or slightly larger number of uh, Ukrainian-based staff who are working there. I don't know how many people they're pulling out, but clearly um, a skeleton staff will be remaining there to do the important work of trying to keep a peace process on track and to make sure that the British government is properly informed of what is going on in Ukraine and also to make sure that we can protect British interests in Ukraine as well as possible. How good are relations between Britain and Ukraine? What role can Britain try to do to try to resolve this uh, diplomatically, to try and step back from, as you were saying, what increasingly looks like a you know, uh, we're marching towards some sort of conflict between Britain, uh, between Russia and Ukraine. The UK has all, always strongly supported the independence and sovereignty of Ukraine. We don't recognise the annexation of Crimea any more than any other country in the world does. Even, even Belarus, Moscow's closest ally, has not recognised the annexation of Ukraine. And to those people who say, you'll never get it back, I would just say, look at the Baltic states, which after... 1945, everybody said, well, they're part of the Soviet Union now, and in fact, they've become independent countries. So the UK will be pushing strongly to support diplomatic measures to talk to the Russians. That is part of what they want to be seen at the top table of negotiations with the US. And we will also be trying to make Ukraine a bit pricklier in terms of increasing the cost to Russia should the Russian leadership, for their own very obscure reasons, decide to push for an actual armed conflict. But we all know that the Russian people, who are on the whole natu naturally very sensible, um, have no desire for a war, and they really don't want to see body bags coming back to Moscow, St. Petersburg, Novosibirsk, and so on. That was Lee Turner, a former British ambassador to the Ukraine, speaking to me a little earlier this morning. Uh, let's now turn our attention to, to Liam Fox, Conservative MP and former Defence Secretary, who joins us now. Hi, Liam. Good morning, Matt. What is your assessment on what is happening in Russia and Ukraine right now and Britain's ability to do anything about it? Well, it is a blatant act of aggression. And for Minister Lavrov to say that Russia poses no threat to Ukraine is laughable. Uh, Ukraine is still suffering from the occupation of part of its sovereign territory, which began in 2014. Uh, what we're seeing is a, is a blatant act of aggression by Russia towards Ukraine, 100,000 troops around the border, uh, threatening cities like uh, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. 
and they, uh, there is no reason for it because the Ukraine poses no threat whatsoever to Russia. Now, you then have to ask, why is Russia acting? Uh, well, Putin has had two uh, types of behavior. One is his claim that the protection of Russian citizens, ethnic Russians, lies with the Kremlin and not with the constitution of the law or the laws of the countries in which those people live. And that's, of course, uh, makes a mockery of our concept of international law. And he's also maintained the old Soviet view that Russia has uh, a right to what they call a near abroad. In other words, they should have a veto over the foreign and security policies of their immediate geographical neighbors. And that goes against our entire understanding of self-determination. So we are faced with the, uh, a Russia, some would say, um, that is probing the West's uh, intent and, and, and the West's uh, strength in defense following the self-inflicted humiliation of the Afghanistan withdrawal. I don't really buy that completely because of the action in 2008 in Georgia and 2014 in Ukraine. This is a, an aggressive gangster regime uh, that poses a real threat to its neighbors. And what we need to do is to, first of all, uh, make it very clear that we will never accept the uh, annexation of the Crimea, that we will always support the independence, the sovereignty and the self-determination of Ukraine politically and uh, economically. And that means that if Ukraine in time wants to move towards other Western institutions, it, including the, the EU or NATO, it has a right to do so uh, if it fulfills the criteria and if, if those institutions um, want them to be part of it. So it, it's, it's a very clear uh, uh, differentiation, I think, between those who believe in the international rule of law uh, and those gangsters who don't. Um, um, when you were Defence Secretary and you oversaw a, a review of, you know, Britain's preparedness for various types of conflicts and for a couple of decades before it was always seen as something that might be played out in Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, and you, you said then that we needed to think again about potential uh, conflicts with, you know, a different type of conflict. Do you think that we are heading towards seeing a situation where Britain is embroiled in some sort of conflict between Ukraine and Russia? Well, if there is a conflict between Ukraine and Russia, our choice is either to do nothing or do something. We can't do nothing because uh, that would be to send a signal that we didn't believe in international law uh, and that we didn't believe in, in defending the interests of countries whose self-determination is utmost. Uh, the question is how we would deal with that. Uh, of course, you've got the physical environment and there's the option of pr providing Ukraine uh, with further military equipment. Um, Russia must understand, given the, what they were endured in Afghanistan, for example, that they could be bogged down in a very costly conflict in terms of lives and, and money uh, for them, at absolutely no benefit to the Russian people. Um, and likewise, their, their demands for NATO to remove its troops from uh, the Baltic states uh, is utterly uh, something that we cannot accept. Countries have a right to belong to a defensive alliance if they want. And the reason that these countries want to see, as we have done, reinforcement of the security by NATO is because of the threat of Russia. It is Russia that is creating the problems, not the West, uh, when it comes to European security. Uh, and just finally, you're talking about if, if we have a choice between doing nothing and doing something. How problematic is it that um, in the coming weeks as this crisis unfolds, we either have a 
a prime minister fighting for his political life <coughs> or potentially a leadership contest to replace him? Well, I've been arguing, as you know, here and elsewhere, um, that we need to look at all the issues in, in, in perspective and have a sense of proportion. And I think this is not the time for the Conservative Party to have a three-month period of navel-gazing in a leadership election. We actually require stability. The last thing that we need as a country is for the Foreign Secretary or the Defence Secretary or others to be involved in leadership politics internally at a time when there's a major international crisis to face. The public may be angry uh, about uh, parties held in Downing Street and, and they're right to be so, but parliamentarians need to have a sense of proportion uh, about what is in our national interest and what are the wider issues where the UK needs to stand up and be counted at a time of international tension and danger. Liam Fox, uh, Conservative MP, former Defence Secretary, thanks very much for joining us uh, on Times Radio this morning. Let's just turn our attention now to just the, the military aspect uh, of all of this. Uh, David Liddington, uh, former uh, well, Theresa May's de facto deputy when she was Prime Minister, now heads the uh, defence think tank RUSI, uh, joins us. Hi, David. Hi, hi. good to speak to you, Matt. We've also got Major General Tim Cross, a uh, retired army officer. Hi, Tim. Good morning, Matt. Um, just put into context for us, um, uh, David Liddington, when James Heapy talks about a fully digitised war, the sort of war we haven't seen before, what does that look like? Well, what it means is that uh, Russia has available to it um, not only very um, weighty modern conventional forces, including long-range cruise missiles and the like, which uh, one assumes they would use in a strike to try to knock out Ukrainian uh, capabilities. But they also have um, cyber capabilities. And we've seen already in recent years um, uh, Russian or Russian-sponsored cyber attacks on various European countries and entities. And I'm sure if the conflict were to break out, that that would be an element of it. What's true about Ukraine is that I, I, I agree with the commentators who say that Ukraine um, would find it very hard to resist an all-out Russian attack. The Ukrainian army is much uh, better equipped, better trained than it was at the time of the first Russian invasion back in 2014. And uh, there is also, I think, a greater sense now than there was in 2014 of Ukrainian nationhood and solidarity. I mean, it, it's ironic that one of the things Putin has achieved by his occupation of Crimea and his intervention in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine is actually to make most Russian speaking uh, Ukrainians uh, feel more Ukrainian. And I remember as a minister going to Dnipropetrovsk, you know, overwhelmingly Russian speaking city, the, the, the east of the, the country. And no, Ukrainian blue and yellow flags absolutely everywhere. Uh, and so, so Putin's uh, aggression is having the opposite effect in terms of Ukrainian opinion from the one, one he wants to see. But I, I, my fear is if Putin decides to, uh, to act with the forces that he's got there and yeah. he can't keep them you know, sitting on their bayonets as the, the, the proper would have it indefinitely, then... Um, it is going to be a pretty savage and all-out attack. That's what we saw in Chechnya. It's what we saw with the Russian intervention in Syria. And the Kremlin has shown in recent years that he has no compunction about large-scale loss of life if it helps it achieve its military objectives.
Uh, David Inson, thank you for that. Just finally, uh, Major General Tim Cross, um, what state is the British Army in right now? Well, you know, Liam Fox saying, if if Russia does invade, we've got a choice between doing something and doing nothing. Are we in? Are we physically capable of doing something? No, not not. There's no way that NATO, yeah. UK included, is going to fight uh, physically to to defend Ukraine. We've been sending them weapons. We've been sending them training teams. Uh, and we have very, you know, pretty good close relationships with, with Ukraine. But there's no way that we are going to send a, a brigade or a division as in the first or, or second Gulf War or in the Balkans. And so where does that leave us then? Just sort of saying, oh, stop it from the sidelines. Well, no, no, I think it's more, more to it than that. I think uh, just picking up the points that David made, when, when you assess these sorts of operations, uh, under British Army doctrine, we talk about fighting power. And when we assess whether somebody's going to win or lose, we, we look at this, this equation of fighting power. And it consists of three components, the physical component, which is the stuff. And there's no doubt that Russia has got huge amounts of equipment. And if it decided to conduct a massive full-scale attack on, on Ukraine, uh, it would be overwhelming force. Mm. Um, and, but as David says, the Ukrainians have got much better capability than they did have you know, a few years ago. The second component of fighting power is the conceptual. How do you actually conduct those operations? And the Russians, uh, in addition to using overwhelming force, but nonetheless have developed this whole idea of hybrid warfare, grey zone warfare, using cyber, uh, using uh, all sorts of other, other issues below the threshold of conventional war, if you like. And there's certainly one option is that Putin will put more pressure on Ukraine and conduct these operations in that sort of grey zone. The third component is what we call the, the moral component of fighting power. It's the will to fight and the... And the ability to get your guys to be prepared to die for the cause in simple terms. And David's absolutely right. The Ukrainian moral component, I've got no doubt, that is greater than, in inverted commas, the Russian component. The yeah. Ukrainians will fight for their country. And that's not to say the Russians, in the end, won't conduct military operations and be successful, depending on what, what it is they try to do. I mean, they, I think they will probably try to seize a corridor uh, to link up Crimea and, and, and hold all the coastline if they conduct a military operation. But it's possible that they will conduct a full-scale operation. I think it's possible, but if I'm honest, I don't think it's probable. Although the, the, the sort of mood music in the last couple of weeks would suggest that, that that equation is shifting. But that moral component piece is absolutely crucial in the ability of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military with their reserves, etc., to hold out and fight hard and give Russia you know, a hard time. And I don't think, as David again alludes to, the Russian people are all that keen on another Afghanistan. So, yeah, Tim, Tim Cross, we're going to have to leave it there. That's Major, Major General Tim Cross uh, was joining us. David Lidington, uh, before that, the head of the Rusi think tank. Hopefully uh, you're slightly better informed now as to exactly what is going on in Russia. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.